Listener Production. Owen Wright is a renowned professional surfer, having won many championships. On the morning of the 10th of December 2015, Owen entered the water at Pipeline Hawaii. But after being pounded by a set of monstrous waves, he was later that day fighting for life in hospital with brain trauma. Look at that, there's Owen just holding on. And I'm hoping that he's okay because that was an amazing wipeout. I mean, that thing was so throaty, so gnarly, and he is definitely not moving much right now. In a single moment, he went from being ranked fifth in the world in surfing to having to learn how to walk and talk again. This is not just a conversation about surfing. It's about the extraordinary journey of recovery and defying all odds to make an astonishing comeback to professional surfing. In this heartfelt conversation, we discuss his complex relationship with his dad, the mindset that propels him forward and the profound insights gained from facing adversity head on. As I've got older, though, I have a different relationship with fear, though. I listen to it now and I look at it, I understand it, I try and hear what it's trying to tell me, whether or not it's unwarranted or if it is something I should pay attention to. Instead of that look at that wave and it's like, oh God, this is huge, I'm going to go. Now it's like, uh, what am I looking for here that's, that's hitting the wrong part of the reef or that's going to close out or maybe I'll let this one go. It'll be another opportunity. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Through my years of studying and researching the connection between human behaviour, personal growth and transformation, I have discovered the keys to unlocking greatness within others. In this podcast, I share stories and experiences from my own teachings, along with conversations with inspiring guests to help you learn the simple tips, habits practices and strategies to cultivate an extraordinary existence. Owen Wright is the author of his new book, Owen Wright, Against the Water. In its essence, this conversation is about an athlete who refused to accept that his best days were behind him and stopped at nothing to not only rebuild his identity, but to construct a better one. My hope is that this discussion leaves you with a renewed sense of purpose, an unwavering belief in your own potential and a profound understanding that embracing challenges and tapping into your inner strength can lead to a life of extraordinary fulfilment and greatness. Owen, you say to know your story, we have to know your background. I'd love to know what life was like in your younger years. You say, my father is a conscientious person who's allergic to shortcuts and soft options. So take us back to your relationship with your dad growing up. We had a really, I guess, great, strong father figure growing up. He was such a leader, not just for our family, but also like the community taught hundreds of people Kung Fu and Tai Chi and different disciplines and I guess morals and all kinds of different things. And we kind of got the benefits of that as well. He'd bend over backwards for us all, whether it was he'd sometimes go to work at three in the morning, come back, take us for a surf and then head back to work and just help us kind of get up and out and get going and then head back to work. So he he was a plumber 
So he worked a lot, but he definitely made so many sacrifices to kind of help us kids like get into sports and I guess be pretty driven as well as far as training and health and the rest of it goes. He was a very strict man and you talk a lot about that in your book. You say at one point, although he allowed us to attend birthday parties, we were forbidden to consume what he called rubbish food, pies, cakes, lollies, biscuits, ice cream, soft drinks, all were off limits. So we tended to go hungry at parties. My father had a handful of very close mates, but he didn't make any new ones. Laurie Byrne once spoke to him about this, advising Dad to give us more breathing room and back off on holding us to military standards of self-discipline and restraint. But Laurie might as well have said his piece to a seawall. Many people thought our vegetarian diet was madness, telling Dad as much. How could your children possibly be getting enough protein, they'd say. These questions never faze my father. Watch my kid outrun your kid, he'd shoot back. (laughs) That's very much my dad. The birthday party one was interesting. Like that was definitely a harder one for us kids because it was like, oh, why can't we, you know, participate in what seemingly was normal activity um, or just normal foods. But, yeah, like the whole Maccas and all the rest of it, which is, you know, big hit. Um, Obviously now with health and like learning so much more about health, I look back and go, thank God. At the time, though, like, you know, kids just want want to eat lollies and the junk food and the birthday parties. So I kind of stopped going to birthday parties, I think, Mm. eventually, and just was way into sports anyway. Mm. Um, So it kind of did shape, you know, having that that rule there did shape, well, I don't really like going to birthday parties anyway. So um, I started doing more sports. So it kind of did... In a way, it was like, I don't know if that was purpose, but it did shape what I ended up liking to do because there wasn't that much fun to be had at a party anyway. It was kind of had to say no the whole time to all these like delicious foods. (laughs) And you used to make you wake up at 4.30 in the morning, your whole family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How was that? Yeah, sometimes it was brutal. Um, The cold, I remember the cold and, you know, starting out so rugged up and then by the end of it, whilst we're doing these like, I guess, physical slash mental battle um, exercises, some of them like holding positions for like 20 minutes and you just end up having to take your shirt and your clothes because you're just sweating and, and the intensity of it all. So to have us all up that early in the morning, he's definitely a taskmaster and he, he ran a pretty tight ship. Like we were all, we were all doing it. I mean, when you reflect, you obviously have kids of your own now and you reflect mm-hmm. on your childhood it seems like he didn't really give you so much. You grew up pretty fast. I think that depends on, you know, on what way you look at it. Like I, from a young age, I was saying I wanted to be a pro surfer. Mm. Um, if I was not, I guess, showing so much interest in sports and things like that, then I guess they probably, I don't know if he would have driven so hard, but I mean, that's just the life I live. So yeah. I, I can't really say I didn't have a childhood because to me, I look back and I go, man, like I was spearfishing. I had so much freedom if it was to do with sports. Like I could I could ride to different towns to surf at whatever time of the morning I wanted to. I was late to school. I don't know how many times just because <laughs> sport, <laughs> surfing, <laughs> you know, all those things that I look at. And I was spearfishing probably a K out at bombies at like 12 
So I felt like I had heaps of freedom when I look back. But if I look into that side of it where, oh, like I didn't get like the childhood, well, I didn't get all the toys and I didn't get all the video games and I didn't get all the treats and the lollies. Because I didn't get that, I, I don't really see that as child. Like a yeah. Fun, yeah, like I didn't go to the theme parks and the rest of it and I know that. Yeah. I mean, you obviously are a pro surfer and, and that's what people know you for. Mm-hmm. How did that come about? Yeah, I think that was A, my dad, B, the environment, like my town. There was like some really good surfers. One of my mentors, Laurie Byrne, he was a, um Australian champion in the Masters and then also an a incredible board shaper who'd shaped for like Tom Carroll and all these like other pro surfers. So it's pretty rare that like I'm in this tiny little town, we've got this like he's a pro shaper who's shaped for the pros and then also, an, you know, a champion himself. And he's kind of that link to pros, right? Like he mm. shows us all these posters of different surfers. And I remember looking at a poster of Michelle Perez when he was like 12 years old. He was like, oh, there's this young kid in Tahiti. That's incredible. I end up competing against him on the world tour, but um, years to come. But like he was kind of our link to this pro kind of mm-hmm. space. Um, and then obviously my dad was just like just so well equipped for um, teaching discipline and work ethic and, you know, being task orientated or goal orientated. So it kind of was this environment that um, I was maybe just born into and and um, flourished in. Um, but it might not have been for everyone, you know, like it was definitely that that whole environment that created me becoming a pro surfer, but also like that was all I wanted too. So it's like, did I want it or did that environment create it? I always have these questions in my head because... Nurture nature kind of thing. Yeah, look at that environment I was in, you know. It was, it's pretty rare for such a tiny town. Like this shaper was like spending time with me every day, surfing, watching me surf, developing me, like shaping custom boards. Wow. Which it's access to... You don't get access to that, you know? Yeah. And I had access to that. That's amazing. There was an occasion when you were having like an Aussie pipeline examination with your dad and you say that the words he said to you changed your life forever. Can you talk to us a bit about that? There's a moment there at Aussie Pipe that I break down in the book and I have an accident out there. And How old are you? I was seven. Yeah six or seven, <laughs> my son's age, which is wild to think. There's no way I'd have him doing what I was doing then. <laughs> but um, I was surfing Aussie pipe and I lost a chunk of my ear on the reef and got knocked out for the first time. And, you know, obviously later on, the, I have many more of those moments, but that was the first moment and it was kind of about fear and the ocean and um, I've got a chance to conquer it. And so it was about getting back out there with, you know, with blood that was running out of your head, you were dizzy, you were still nauseous. And I went back out to uh, conquer Aussie Pipe and, and conquer my fears. So that relationship with fear was set up for me pretty young, which mm. was like if there's fear and that's intimidating, then it's, it's straight through it. Yeah, and that's what your dad said to you, which is an integral part of this story that you tell in Against the Water. I know that you obviously went on to be a 
pro surfer and you won a lot of different medals and did some crazy, amazing things. But one of the people you talk about in the book is Kelly Slater and um, what a champion he is. Can you talk to us a bit about how it was to compete against him? Yeah, he's everything. I guess I need to frame Kelly. Like he's 11-time world champion. He was he was probably like an eight or nine-time world champion by the time I got on tour. So he's like this everything in the sport, um, the level of intimidation that his name carries, let alone his aura as a person and how he presents himself in a competitive situation. You know, my dad was well aware of this. This is a quite a big task for for juniors, let alone guys that have been battling him for years on tour and never succeeded. So there was all this context around who he was and the fear, the level of fear that name could put inside you. So, But my relationship with fear was, which was Kelly, I guess, mm-hmm. was in that, was that I was never going to shy away from that um, and to meet that head on and I did. And that was where that first kind of rivalry came from and he enjoyed it, I enjoyed it. It was a really great time. We had lots of finals together and um, got over, over him a bunch of times and, and yeah, some close battles. That's, it's, that's an enjoyable part about sport has been, I felt like I also respected him enough to like, to know how much fear that he was to mm. people, um, to show up, you know, fully, not just shy away. What do you think makes him such a great surfer? Well, I think there's like elements now that possibly that he's, you know, as he gets older, younger kids are just not fearing him as much because it's like he's been around so long and it's on the, on the, he's on the, the downward slope as far as like his competitive ability. And, but he's also losing his mental edge. You know, I know he can still dominate, but it's like back when we first started, his mental edge was was so strong that he wow. could put off anyone around him, like through just a look, a glance. Just his aura was enough to put people off back then, but now it's it's definitely changed now. Um, I think what's made him great though is is probably the, the level of dedication he had to the sport too. Like he's lived and breathed that he's you know, he created a wave pool. Like yeah, <laughs> he's had foresight and enough time to have hindsight and learn. So there's so many things that he's he's brought to the sport and learnt throughout that um, makes him so fiercely competitive and, and, and hard to beat. If we go back to your upbringing, and I wonder, you know, talking again about your dad, what do you think are the attributes that he instilled in you that made you a good surfer? Work ethic, that's definitely one of them instilled in me a level of understanding with the ocean that it could also be like a reflection with how you are and how you are yourself, um, in yourself. So I always will cherish that because sometimes you do go in the ocean and you're all angry inside and, you know, frustrated and you go out in the ocean, you're kind of met with that same energy from Mother Nature. Mm. So that like measuring stick and I think that that's something that, helped me become a great surfer because it was, I was kind of always measuring how I'm going or, you know, checking in, so to speak. And then just probably task orientated too. Like he, he was always great at setting goals and, and taking things on. My relationship with fear was one of them that he kind of set up. 
As I've got older, though, I have a different relationship with fear, though. I feel like it's evolved slightly from back then. But um, how? I, I listen to it now, and and I instead of just like seeing it and taking it on, I I look at it, I understand it, I try and hear what it's trying to tell me, whether or not that if it's unwarranted or if it is something that I should pay attention to. So instead of that looking at wave and it's like, oh God, this is huge, I'm going to go. There's no question. I've just got to go this. It's it's now it's like, uh, what am I looking for here oh, that's, that's hitting the wrong part of the reef or that's going to close out or maybe I'll let this one go. There'll be another opportunity. That's so interesting. I want to take you back to the 10th of December 2015 you paddled out to the biggest wave you'd ever seen at Pipeline. And in your words, you got this cracking wave straight off the boat. Can you explain the impact and what happened that day? I was going for a world title um, and I had a lot of confidence. I'd paddle out in the morning. It was the biggest pipe, biggest waves of pipe I'd seen um, that were contestable anyway. How and big were they? 15 feet for sure. It was wow. really thick. Uh, the, the ocean was bigger itself. Like there was giant waves out in, out the ocean, but the, when the ones that were hitting right were around 15. And I paddled straight out and straight into like the most riskiest um, area of the break to catch these waves. And I was deeper than anyone. So I, I, caught, I caught an amazing one straight off. And so I had this confidence about me like, oh, you know, I'm feeling pretty untouchable. Like I just took my, the most risk you could take and, and, um, and, it, and it worked out. And so I go back out and I head kind of back to that same spot and um, I just had a lapse of judgment. I, instead of like a, this giant wave came and it, it, was, it broke out beyond me. So it was breaking in front of me. And I had this option to like, you should have an option to either duck dive which gets you about this far underwater or bow your board, which you dive to the bottom and you go underneath the, the, the impact of the wave. And I just duck dive. So I was about this far underwater and the wave just landed straight on top of me and just exploded me. Um, and I, I ended up getting a severe concussion and a, and a, um, a, a TBI from, from that wipeout. But um, I didn't, I had enough of an adrenaline response in that moment mm. to just keep me conscious enough to get to the beach. Did you think something in your mind, because you've obviously had similar encounters before, did you think there was anything different about this one? Were you in more pain? Do you remember what it was like when it brought you down? Uh, yeah, I was, I was fighting for my life. I knew something was wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think I've... I mentioned this in the book, but I just kept repeating myself like, oh, man, I got really wiped out or, you know, I just couldn't stop saying it. Like, like it was almost like stuck in my head. You know, even friends that seen me, they'll like look like I'd seen a ghost. Um, and I've actually seen, I, I, obviously I couldn't see myself, but I've actually seen someone in a similar situation at, at Chopu where they looked like the life had gone out of their faces. Like they're just, they're just trying to like survive. Wow. Um, but that's what it felt like for me and that's what my friend said I looked like and then I've seen that in someone else before and, and it's, a, it's a weird thing to see. It's like, wow, they're not, they're not there. They're just, just hanging on. After that, where did you go? I just got back to the house and, um, and then as that adrenaline wore off, um, 
that's when I was like just going out, just going out to it. Um, just was losing. I couldn't. I was losing my words. I couldn't speak. I couldn't move. Um, it was just a really freaky time because I actually. That's when I was really like feeling that the damage that had happened was like I couldn't. I couldn't move. Then that was a. That was a. Yeah, still pretty scary moment. So gives me chills up and back. You say in the book. When I came to, as you mentioned, I could hardly move. I tried calling out, but my words were slurred. I'd been hammered in the surf. I was shaking uncontrollably and I heard Mick say, hold on, the paramedics Mm -hmm. carried me out of the house on a stretcher towards an ambulance. As they did, I looked into the eyes of my friends and sister and saw fear. I started to convulse. Then I've been told my eyes rolled back in my head and I passed out. Mm. Did you fear that there was something more serious at play? It was just panic and fear. Like I, I was fighting for my life in that time. Like it was, it was touch and go, and I felt that like I just couldn't move, and I was like out of like body was shaking, convulsing, I was slurring. I couldn't like, you know, you could imagine the panic that I was feeling there, um, and then, but yeah, that's. That was a tough, tough thing to feel and still tough to talk about it. I feel my body tightening up thinking about it. But mm-hmm. um, everyone was just as scared as what I was because mm-hmm. my, I was in such a bad way um, that, that it was freaking them out. Like I don't think they'd ever seen that and I've never seen that. And I couldn't imagine them watching that and like they would have just been freaked out. Like they wouldn't have known what was happening, let alone myself. I was living it. Yeah, it was a weird time. And then when you got to the hospital, they did scans on you and realised that you had obviously severe brain damage and mm-hmm. it was something they said that was what they would see in, in people who have been at war with bombs, the same sort of damage that was done. I mean, that is... And to look where you are now, and we're having this interview because you've written this book, is yeah. phenomenal. So I just, wow, that must have just been a shock to you. But the funniest thing is then you're in hospital and you, all you want to do is leave. Yeah, and I think this is like brings back to this fear that of like that was the most scared I'd ever been is, you know, being told that been, you know, told what's lay ahead, you know, like, oh, what did five, they to say? Ten, five to 10 years, we don't know. Um, it's the first surfer that we've kind of seen like this, like comparing me to bomb blast people. And that was just like so shocking to hear for me that it, it you know, I think it kicked me into just this like turbo mode of like, just get the hell out of here, you know, Um and wherever he was, whether it was like just getting back to somewhere or whether it was like trying to regain things as quick as I could, I think that's what, what drove me from that place was the, was the fear of staying there yeah. um, and hearing that. It's so interesting, you know, I've talked to quite a few people on this podcast who have gone through terrible things or really bad diagnosis of some sort and There's one thing for obviously you want a doctor to not fluff around. You need to know the facts. But at the same time, there is a way with words. And when someone is on a pedestal like a doctor, you look to them and when they're saying, oh, you know, 
five to six years and throwing around things like that, it's not going to make you feel good. And I wonder if like they, you know, there's been a lot of studies done on hope and especially like in the concentration camps, Victor Frankl, who was a Holocaust survivor and a psychologist, talked a lot about hope and how those people in that camp had hope. They were around, they stayed longer, they passed through the years, but the ones that didn't have hope died earlier and it wasn't because they were sicker, it was because mentally, as you would know from surfing, they lost it. And so I wonder if there is like a place where doctors need to be a little bit more careful about what they're saying to the patients because, I mean, every case is so different. Every case is so different and I, I dare say hope does play a, a big part, yeah. right? And so there is a level of caution they have to have with their words um, but also they've got that duty to let you know like, hey, this is a bit of a reality. And I think just me being having the upbringing I'd had, it's almost like I was prepared for that moment, you know, to, to be told that and then yes. be like, nah. That's not what I'm. That's not what I'm accepting. Despite the, the you know, the failings of like, like the, the pitfalls that I had and all the, the struggles that I had, it was like the, the one thing that remained was like, I'm not. This is not happening. I'm getting out of here. It's an interesting concept about the power of words and when taken seriously, what kind of effect they can have on people's health. Yeah. For myself, you know, despite being told whatever I was told um, at the time, I definitely um, had other plans. <laughs> and, and and I think maybe just like one of my, you know, goals for the book is that I hope people never lose sight of that light at the end of the tunnel, you know. And, you know, if they don't have a light at the end of the tunnel, find something that is that light. Yes. Because like you say, that hope that people survive for longer and made it through, it's... For me, like I, I know many people have had head injuries and they're such confusing places and because you're living the, your brain, right? Like you, mm. the, that's what you're living and it's so confusing to get out of there. And it was just a really important thing that I actually had direction and, and a light um, to aim towards. And so that was, for me, one of the goals of writing this book was hopefully that someone picks that up and goes, all right, like, Yes. I've, got aim. I've got to aim to get it. Yeah. And you know, it's so funny. Obviously, I only read it the other week and already I've used it on a few people that I know who are going through a hard time. So I think it is unbelievably inspirational. But I want to ask you, you mentioned that when you were in the hospital, your dad didn't come. How come he didn't come to your side like the rest of your family? He didn't come to my side for a while. Um, I don't know. It's, it's something... That I wasn't sure why, and and I wasn't scared to tell him when when um, you know, I asked him the question. Um, but what did he say? He just said oh, I didn't didn't think it was that bad, or it just it didn't really have a hell of a great answer. Yeah. <laughs> um, Do you reckon he was scared? Some part of me feels that that um, fear in him drives him to do you know, big things. And, and I think that was one thing he couldn't face. Um, I didn't want to face. And, you know, there's other things in the book that I, I know that he found hard to face as well. Um, when your mum got sick as well, she had a brain tumour. Yeah. He wasn't around that much for her. Yeah, and that's something I disagreed with him upon. And 
and never quite understood. And, and, and he raised it here again with not coming to my side straight away. Kind of similar response there. It's interesting, but, you know, that's just who he was. Did you forgive him for that? Yeah, for sure, definitely. I've always had this relationship with my dad where I, I, I've told him what I think, but I've always forgiven, you know, and sometimes, like, you know, I apologise for my own reactions, you know, and shortcomings as a son, but I've always found that space for him. So um, I love everything about him and what he's done and despite some of the disagreements. So it's just um, just one of them ones that I was, you know, got to say to him again and, and sure enough he, he came to my side eventually um, and ended up playing a really pivotal role in, on me getting out of the head injury mess. How did he help you? Yeah, he, well, when he eventually came, um, he just has a way with words and his strength and his aura that he just, it was like music to my ears, hey. Um, he Very repetitive, but it was just <laughs> all good, solid, like you're going to be a champion again. You need to work, you need to get up, you need to get going. Let's get back to the ocean, yeah. like, you know. Um, and, and a lot of stuff with my life too, you know, like with my wife now and, and at the time like becoming a father in the future. So he was really monumental and just saying, hey, like this is a treasured moment and, and um, really strong in, in, um, in just some good solid foundations for me to kind of leap off instead of um, being so caught rolling around in that head injury space. It wasn't obviously an easy recovery. You talk about, you know, meeting your partner and who's a very successful musician and and she was, you know, an integral part of your recovery and journey as well. But there was something I wanted to talk about, which we do talk a lot about on this podcast, one of my favourite things that not happy, I mean, not happy you had it, but you're still here, which was a near-death experience that you had. And you say one afternoon you sat up and you'd had something to eat and next minute all the strength had left your body and you had an NDE, a near-death experience. I have spoken with a few near-death survivors and I find it fascinating and you had your own journey with that. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, um, I can still feel it like it was yesterday, like that everything is so clear, so vivid, so precise which is the first thing in when it's kind of like your imagination, you kind of doubt that a lot. But when people have these NDEs, it's clear as day, even though it was years ago. So there's that big difference. Yeah, like I'm talking like I can remember that more than anything throughout that whole time period. Wow. It is just so crystal clear. And I don't talk about this much, obviously, and I'll put it down in my book, but... I know, I noticed in the book you are hesitant, but please know you're on the right podcast to talk about it because it's okay. a, the community is very spiritual and um, interpersonal development. Right, okay, good, because it's, it's one that I don't share that much, but it's um, basically I was on the bed and then I, you know, I was still in such a bad way straight out of hospital. It was like not probably shouldn't have been out of hospital, but I was so like 
adamant. It was just like an overwhelming afternoon. People in my room, family, and just finished. I don't think I'd even finished dinner, and I just went. I just went out to it, like, and I went to this other place, and it was so incredibly colourful and beautiful. And I wasn't like speaking in itself, but there was commu- I had two other entities around me that I could communicate freely with without words. Um, and they were light, weren't they? You saw them as light. Yeah, yeah, saw them as like energy and light. Like it was the, the all, everything was colour and energy and light and, and like you could kind of make out like a bit of a valley and all the rest of it, but just in colours, so to speak. What did they say to you? They said that I was going to be okay, which is super weird, but I, I felt like I kind of had a choice too. Like they gave me a bit of a choice when I was there and they gave me a choice of whether or not I wanted to stay or, or go back. Wow. And I chose to go back. What made you choose that? My like now wife and my family and, you know, all those good things were still with me whilst I was there, which was, sounds weird, but they were with me there. Like well, they weren't with me there, but the, I still had those thoughts. Yes. It's not that I can spoke that, but I was like, I felt that I was going, that's what I was going back for. And then they were like, basically acknowledged that in their own way and and, um, let me know that I was going to be okay. And I still remember now, like some of the struggles I went through after that, I always, I was a bit annoyed, like, because it was so hard. (laughs) Hey, when you told me I was going to come back, you didn't mention it was going to be hard. <laughs> Did you say that to them in your prayers? Honestly, the amount of times I have said that in the years, like I'm talking like three years later, I didn't tell me it was going to be this Where were the hard. details? Where were the details? Yeah, yeah. and so I, I have said that a lot, but um, nonetheless, it has been okay. Like yeah. I, I wasn't told a lot. Like I'm so blessed. I've had incredible like... What results, but I've been challenged every step of the way. But maybe I misunderstood what they were saying. I think (laughs) from my understanding of the other realm, it's the more the bigger picture and the higher message that they give you, not like the intricate details, because really that's your path and your journey to learn. So if you Mm -hmm. knew that already, you may have not chosen to come back. Maybe they knew coming back was a very important thing to you, but had you known of the struggle, it would have been like you're in this state of bliss and oneness and love up there. It's hard to come back knowing that you're going into like duality, hardship on this kind of earthly plane. So they maybe kept that from you for a reason. Yeah, probably. (laughs) The amount of times I've thought like this is not what I was told or like passed on. (laughs) Um, And sometimes laying awake there at night just like, oh, man, this is so incredibly complex, uh, my recovery and the things that were unfolding and life changes and challenges. Nonetheless, being over there, that that's clear as day. What did it feel like? Was it that feeling, from what I've heard from others, it's a feeling of oneness and love and there's no, it's just like, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, it is. It's a beautiful feeling. Yeah, it's like the ultimate connection, you know, like you just, there's no separation, there's no, yeah. what you feel you are. Um, and it was all there. And that's why I kind of meant like what I feel about 
my, my life was with me there and I wanted to go back. And that was the choice I kind of had. But yeah, like just that whole other side thing, like I haven't heard a hell of a lot of people talk about things. I've heard a glimpse of some other person just recently and I was like, oh God, that's the same, same thing I'm speaking about or same thing I felt. It's, um, it, has it changed your relationship now with death? I don't feel like it's like this, this finish point death. Mm. Like I, I definitely don't have that, which I definitely had that before. When I say the other side, I don't feel, it's not far away. It's literally like right there. Yeah. I don't feel like the death is that finish point and I just feel like I'll be just right there whether or not mm. I'm awake or not. But it's exactly, you know, I love these stories because it is my very much my belief system and the fact that like, you know, I had someone close to me die a couple of weeks ago and I was with my grandma at the gravesite. We were watching the body go down into the ground mm-hmm. at the burial site and she's like, this is really the end, isn't it? And I said, you know, that's just the body. You know the soul continues. And she's like, yeah, yeah, I know. And your story is like highlights that completely. It's definitely how I view it now. I definitely feel like they're right there, whoever's like around. Whether yeah. it's someone who's just passed or even grandmas and grandpas, I don't feel like they're too far. Mm, that's beautiful. I wonder for you now, you mentioned that the recovery has been not the easiest one. What kind of things did you have to go through? Because you did have a pivotal moment when you were in an oxygen chamber that you talk about in the book. Yeah. Everything that I had happen was like there was this great positive, but the negative side to that is I I found it hard to recall the last four months. Mm. And my life had changed dramatically, you know, then there was so many complexities that I had to deal with again, which was like, oh, great, you've made this big leap forwards. And, you know, neurologist like, yeah, this is, this was going to happen. And this is, this is common. Um, your brain was in a trauma response. So you had post-traumatic amnesia and your, your memories are not laying down in the correct filing cabinet, so to speak. And so they're going to be hard to access. And I was like, yeah, um, that's not helped me with everything that I'm dealing with yeah. right now. <laughs> um, and at the time, I, you know, I, I'd felt like I'd just had um, this this big blur. But then prior to that, was that like I was clear, and then I'd just had this accident, and three or four months of it had just gone missing. And he assured me that they were going to come back, and and they definitely did. But over time, but I had a, a brand new girlfriend prior to the accident. And then coming up into three months, you know, three to four months, I had a um, a, a girlfriend still, but she was pregnant. And mm. and it was like, you know, finding these details out was like, whoa, 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 like so much big information to take in. And then my condition and my state and oh, what, what's to, where do I, how long and how do I deal with all this? Um, so it was a, it was extremely, um, mentally challenging time that that I made it through and I was just as tough for my wife mm. as well. It affects your moods and stuff as well, brain injuries, for a period of time. Like, it, I mean, the brain controls everything. Yeah, well, like, I had to get my brain from, like, such a reduced state yeah. back to, like, a world tour, back to surfing and competing, right? And, and to do that, you have to train it. And I don't know if, if you've gone from, like, 
a wasted away muscle and then all of a sudden it needs to be back. Yes. Like you've got to tear that muscle. Yes. And you, after you lift weights, whether it's 20, say you start out 20 kilos, you're going to have a very sore muscle. Mm. Like the next day, if you're like, oh, I've just lifted weights for the first time. So I was living, you know, that muscle pain you have, I was living that. Wow. Like every day that I push myself, I have these giant backlashes, like giant, like one step forwards, like 10 step backwards. It mm. was just so, so wild to live because in those days I was backwards. It was like I was struggling to find like my name, what a spoon was, wow. breakfast, like what am I doing, where am I, um, so much. But I just had to keep pushing. So it was, um, but I had to, I had to physically get from, even even in that three or four months, I still had to get from like bed to wheelchair to walking frame to the end of the house, out of the house, into the ocean. Like it was a long way to come back from where I was. You ended up winning a bronze medal at the Olympics, which is just unbelievable for Australia. Did you ever think that you would be able to get from that point of not remembering your name to do that? Mm, nah. <laughs> Everything sat outside of the things I achieved sat outside of my headspace. Yeah, um, and I think it definitely blew my wife away. Obviously, she's been with me throughout all of it, and but it definitely sat outside my headspace. Um, but nonetheless, I didn't like not aim for it or not try my absolute best. Um, even though at times there's nothing to say that I was ever gonna achieve anything again. Yes. I just still somehow aimed for that top, the top or the, the, the very top. And there might be something to be said for that, right? Well, it's like the flicker of light never went out. Like you never allowed it to go out. It may have dimmed for a bit, but it was still there. Like that fire kept on burning. And it mm -hmm. is that hope thing, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. I think that just even the, having this conversation with them, I'm kind of going, yeah, well, it, it never went out. And I always did aim for the top. Not that I was like, I'm going to win. Yeah. Never thought that. Just always aimed for it. And it's something that I say to pass on to juniors today that you know, even one of my friends the other day mentioned that he has these dreams. I said, well, dream it every day as much as you can mm. um, because cause one day it could be real. And, and the more you dream it, you more, yes. I don't know, just feel like you, you get closer. There's a technique you talk about in the book, which I use every day. It's not for athletic abilities, which is <laughs> visualization. And mm -hmm. I have been taught it when I do manifestation. So kind of creating what I want into my life, drawing it to me. And a lot of athletes use it and musicians do as well for practicing. That's been quite an integral part of your journey as well, hasn't it? Definitely. Yep. So can you talk to us a bit about what you do when you're visualising? I think to begin with, it was my my dad who was doing my visualising for me, yeah. feeding me such <laughs> like, it's almost like he was manifesting it, you know, like, hey, you're going to be a champion, whatever, man. Like, yeah. <laughs> like obviously still going, but then as time got back and I went back into it, I, I did start um, just... I don't know if I was intentionally, but I just do love aiming for that top. And I, I'm a big believer in it that I just, that they can pull you out of anywhere, whether mm. that's, you know, you've got good words for it, probably manifestation, but yeah. I, I do I do believe 
you know, that aiming for the top despite like your surroundings or your, you know, your shortcomings or whatever, that eventually it will pull you to a better place. 100%. Where you are. Yeah. I've seen it happen time and time again. I see it in my own life, even with just little things that I want. I'd love to know what you do. I mean, I go into a meditation and then I do like a technique where I'm like raising my energy and I'm seeing the scenario in my head that I want to happen and it's like I'm there and I'm mm. feeling it, I'm seeing it, I'm, you know, there's no separation kind of like when you have that near-death experience, it's there with me. And so then you see, they say it like, you know, if you believe in cause, everything has a cause and then an effect. The time that it takes between cause and effect is lessened because you're bringing this in what do you do when you do that visualization? I guess my process is that I know anything can happen just through my experiences. Yes. Right. And so I have like a pretty big acceptance of like your life, you have this vision and a bad turn you think is a bad turn could be the greatest turn in your life. Mm. Right. Like, so down is up and up is up. I have this other thing where it's like, if I'm feeling something that's like huge and, and, and like there's unworthiness and things like that that can stop you from like mm. getting to those great places, I often sit with them and hold them and get to know them and try to let them go to kind of make space for what is to come mm. um, or, or those great things to come in. Because sometimes you can be already full, right? Like, I don't know, I just see it that way. Is like, yeah. And you've got some, you're holding on some things that eventually uh, that you just need to let go. That's kind of my process with it all is that there's like letting go to do. And then there's also like, you know, your perception of what's good and bad is, I think, a key mm. part. And then obviously like having the dream, like having that light at the end of the tunnel and looking at that light that's up above, it's like, You've got to let go of the darkness to get to the light. Mm. So I don't know. That's just kind of it's beautiful. The way I see it. Well, how was winning that bronze medal at the Olympics? Yeah, that, I felt like it was like, oh, I just touched the light bulb. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like it finally felt like I'd like let go of that, um, let go of the dark as such, and yes. and um, I've just like became all light, and it felt it just felt like a beautiful moment and. I was actually leading into that. I was going through some of the darkest like results and what perception would be like, hey, he's out of form, he's not looking good, like terrible results. And I just had been through so many bad things that mm. I was like, this is great. This is building strength. Oh, yeah, I just took another loss. Great. Like this is breakfast. I love this, you know? Yes. And I ended up taking a loss right before that, before the bronze medal match. And it was like it didn't affect me, but the person who'd been winning up to that point and on a, it, I could see his loss affected him before that. So it's almost like those tough things created that beautiful moment. Wow. And I was prepared for it. So it was a it was a big moment for me and also my wife and mm. my family. It was a cool moment. What's the best advice that you have ever been given? I would probably say um, it's kind of the aiming for the top, what we've been talking about. Yeah, yeah. Like... It's not about achieving the top. It's about the aiming. Yeah. And then everything you learn along the way. Totally. Like, having the dream. Having the dream. I was going to mm. say dream and I was like, yeah, it's... No, it's, it's nice. Yeah. 
What's something that you wish for yourself? That I learn the lessons I need and grow as a human, even though some of those things can be incredibly tough and there's some things that I'm dealing with that are tough at the moment, but um, I don't wish for them to leave, you know. I don't I don't want to, I, I want to learn the things I need to learn. So yeah, I think that's something that I've been wishing for myself lately is that, um, that the, the growth happens. That's something that I'm wishing. Is there a prayer or saying or mantra that you say to yourself ever? Yeah, there's a couple. <laughs> One lately is, is more to do with like uh, forgiveness. I guess like some of the things I've always, I've done and some, you know, like taking care of my, my old man at the moment, I sometimes think that it's not enough or enough or it's... um. I always kind of at the moment asking for like kind of acceptance and forgiveness in that that place because I know I'm not like completely right, but I'll get there. (laughs) How's your health now? Yeah, it's it's going okay. Um, I've retired from the world tour and that's been the biggest blessing Mm. um, because my everything stabilised, my health, right. I guess. Um, I, I'd been pushing my brain pretty hard for a long time and it's really enjoying that that break. Mm. But it's that fine line I'm treading at the moment of like relaxing and resting and, and, and because moving is also health and moving mm. is also, you know, like gets all the energy going and whatnot. So just like I think at the moment I'm, I'm going pretty good but... Um, I'm definitely not going to be taking on the big risks of giant waves and charging big waves and putting myself into situations that um, I know that my physical body needs a break from. Yes. What is a life of greatness to you? I guess it would be one one that's not shied away from, hmm. I'd say. Yeah, don't be scared to make mistakes. I reckon that's a that would be a life of greatness. Someone's had a go no matter what, you know, if they've, come up short or shortcomings or um, that they've had a go. I Mm. think that's a life of greatness. I think that's a good life of greatness. Owen Wright, thank you for your book, Against the Waters. It is such a beautiful, beautiful read. And I know it's always hard kind of sharing these these stories. And, And like we discussed, it's so inspirational for so many people in different ways. So you are a true champion. Thank you for the conversation today. Oh, thanks for the deep questions and good conversation. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Your Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my manifestation course and meditations, head to the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com or this week's episode show notes to find a link. If you love what you heard, we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. Listener.